It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Dana about myasthenia gravis and endometriosis. Regular listeners of the podcast will be familiar with endometriosis since we've covered it a few times, but this is our first episode about myasthenia gravis. So according to hopkinsmedicine.org, myasthenia gravis, or MG, is a chronic autoimmune disorder in which antibodies destroy the communication between nerves and muscle, resulting in weakness of the skeletal muscles. Myasthenia gravis affects the voluntary muscles of the body, especially those that control the eyes, mouth, throat, and limbs. The cause of myasthenia gravis is unknown, and there is no cure, but early detection and prompt medical management can help people live longer, more functional lives. Dana describes their myasthenia gravis as a thick static, affecting how messages get from their brain to their muscles. This can escalate to a myasthenia crisis, where the muscles involved in breathing can become so weak that you have to rush to the ER. Dana has had to fight for both of their diagnoses, as medical gaslighting started at a very young age. At 10 years old, Dana decided they would never go to a doctor again unless they absolutely had to, because they'd been accused of making up their symptoms for attention. Dana is now 30 years old and was just diagnosed with myasthenia gravis last year. But since being diagnosed by a neurologist, Dana has been on medication for myasthenia gravis that has been helping significantly with their symptoms. I was very interested to talk to Dana about what they thought was happening in their body before this myasthenia gravis diagnosis. Just imagine going through flare-ups where suddenly your body is so heavy that you can't move, where all of your muscles become so weak that they stop working, and doctors are unwilling to listen or provide any insight as to what might be happening. This has affected every aspect of Dana's life, their work as a cinematographer, and their relationships with loved ones. Dana did such a great job during this conversation. It's so interesting to learn about a new disease on the podcast, and also interesting to hear about how these two diseases interact with each other. It is yet another fantastic episode that I'm so excited to share with you, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. Before we jump into our interview with Dana, I have to thank our listeners who support this podcast on Patreon. Normally, I tell you about how there are three tiers of support, but there are now four tiers of support because Patreon has added an awesome new feature where people can actually join for free. I do post about every single episode of the podcast on Patreon as public posts, and now you can join our Patreon to be notified of all public posts for free. You'll have the option to upgrade to a paid subscription at any time, and we still have three tiers of paid subscriptions, $2 per month supporters, $7 per month patrons, and $25 per month producers. All of our paid subscribers gain access to monthly bonus episodes with myself and my partner, Andy. Our $7 per month patrons get an additional gift of a Major Pain coaster, and our $25 per month producers will get a coaster and a Major Pain tote bag. Each tier comes with different levels of recognition on the podcast itself. And speaking of, extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting this at the highest tier of $25 per month, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Your continued support is incredible. Joining Patreon as a free member is actually a great way to support the podcast. It helps to raise the profile of our Patreon page, giving us a higher opportunity of reaching new people through that platform. So if you love this podcast and you're interested in supporting it, but you aren't able to support us financially, joining on Patreon. Patreon for free is a brand new, great way to do that. You can find it at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast, or just search for Major Pain on the Patreon app. 
Speaking of our monthly bonus episodes, Andy and I are working as hard as we can to get that to you this month. We sat down last night to record it, and I had a flare-up and couldn't speak, so it didn't happen. (laughs) Uh, And then she is super busy this month. She's actually in a production uh, workshop of a new musical, and I am working my first job in almost seven years as the company manager for this production. It's about three weeks of work. I'm kind of uh, testing the waters, dipping my toe back into working outside of the house. And it's been really exciting, but I've also been flaring up a little bit more. You know, I'm just trying to find the balance of what I can do. So it's very high on our list to record this bonus episode. Not 100% sure when it will happen, but it will happen. And I will let you know when it's available. Another great way to support the podcast for free is through Rare Patient Voice. If you have a diagnosis of any kind or you are a caregiver, you can sign up through Rare Patient Voice to participate in research studies and surveys. If you sign up using our link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, I will receive a $10 Amazon gift card when you sign up, and those have really added up over time, and it's always so appreciated. Once you've signed up through Rare Patient Voice, they will contact you if they have a research study or survey that fits your diagnosis. And if you participate, you'll be paid for your time, an average of $125 per hour. It's an awesome way to support the podcast and support your community with your disease. Don't forget to leave this podcast a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you listen to the podcast. Thank you to whoever left us our 28th five-star rating on Spotify. It is so appreciated. You can also find Major Pain on our social media platforms, TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, all at Major Pain Podcast. I've been really excited about the content I've been creating for these platforms recently. I've been making a video of introducing the podcast and playing a clip from our episode. It's a much more interactive type of content than I've been doing on these platforms in the past, and I'd love for you to check it out. I mentioned a few weeks back that we were having an issue with our podcast links not showing up in the podcast feed, and I'm excited to say that I just finally got it solved. Thanks to the folks at Blueberry, which is the uh, the podcasting platform that I use. They actually helped me find an issue in my WordPress site that I host the podcast through. Don't know why this one button got changed probably when I updated WordPress at one point, but uh, long story short, our feed is fixed and you should now see all of the podcast links once again in the description of each episode. I'll remind you as always that my guests and I are not medical professionals, so please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our fantastic, super fun episode with Dana discussing their experiences with myasthenia gravis and endometriosis. Dana, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today. I've been following you on TikTok for for quite a while and gotten a little bit of a sense of your personality, and I'm just really excited to get to know you today. Yeah, thanks. Good to hear. I have a fan. (laughs) So, Dana, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? So, um, I am currently working as a cinematographer um, and a little bit rewind even further. Um, I was born in the Midwest. Uh, I was born in the Chicago area. And then I grew up for a majority of my life in uh, Saudi Arabia um, to be closer to family. So I'm Arab American and then came back to the United States uh, and then just kind of lingered in the Midwest 
And then now I'm on the West Coast. Very cool. So you're a cinematographer. What type of uh, film projects do you work on? I work um, kind of split 50-50 between documentary and then narrative film. And when I say narrative, I kind of mean that generally. I do a lot of feature films and then a lot of short films um, and some music videos here and there. Wow. Very cool. How did you break into that? Um, I like to describe it as I fell backwards and just happened to land on both feet. I was initially wanting to be a youth pastor, actually. Wow. And (laughs) believe it or not, um, you wouldn't guess that if you saw me, but I accidentally took some classes at my community college when I was trying to figure stuff out. Um, I had a professor tell me, you know, cell phones are starting to have cameras these days. You should probably get a little bit more training under your belt. And I was like, how dare you? And I, you know, took a class anyways on video production. And I'd been like a lot of kids. I'd been making little short movies with my siblings growing up. And it just kind of all made sense. Wow. Awesome. So what type of equipment do you work with now? Um, not the same VHS cameras, but I now it kind of depends on the shoot. Um, I shoot a lot of, um, Ari cameras. I own my own, uh, black magic 4k camera. So use that sometimes. Um, I still use a lot of like smaller cameras that are, um, much more like consumer grade because I mean, the quality is amazing. And if you have the skill set to make, you know, a bad camera look good, you can shoot on anything. Yeah, totally. I do a lot of uh, video stuff. I have a another TikTok account where I green screen myself into Star Trek. And I just use a, a webcam because it's the easiest thing to be able to see what I'm doing. Ama- perfect. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Although I have, a, I have a Lumix GH3, but I can't like... What? Yeah, and it looks amazing, but I can't look at the tiny screen on that and green screen myself into Star Trek at the same time. Oh, for sure. Yeah, but I love that. I need to find your videos. Yeah, your Star- I'll send videos. it to you. That's amazing. It's very, very nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay, let's get into your story. So, Dana, what is your major pain? My major pain is is myasthenia gravis with a side of endometriosis. <laughs> <laughs> that's, your, that's your special order at the restaurant. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm really excited to talk to you about this because a few weeks back on the podcast, I guess a couple of months back at this point, we spoke to Jeff about his mystery illness. And one of the ideas that came up for him was myasthenia gravis. Uh, you were one of the people who commented on that post and said, hey, I relate to some of what Jeff's been talking about. And you weren't actually the only person. There were several people that recommended that disease as something for Jeff to look into. So I really wanted to talk to someone about this disease and kind of learn more about it, get a sense of what it's like to live with. So I'm thrilled to to do that today. And it sounds like, you know, endometriosis is also going to weave in and out of this story. But before we get to that, let's talk about what is myasthenia gravis? So, myasthenia gravis is uh, essentially a disruption in the neuromuscular junction. So, there is some sort of misfiring or miscommunication going on between the neurons and the muscle cells uh, where they're supposed to be chatting and they're supposed to be, you know, the from the brain to the muscles, 
the neuro the neurons are telling the muscles, hey, I need you to contract. I need you to do this thing. And then the muscles respond, yes, on it. And if all goes well, there's no issue. You contract the muscle, you release, and you move on. But with myasthenia gravis, there's a disruption. There's almost like, um, I've described it as like static, like a very thick static where the message can't get across from the neurons to the muscle cells. Um, and it, as a result of this, the muscles get tired extremely quickly because there aren't uh, the right um, ways of maintenance, essentially, for the muscles uh, to repair. And there's a buildup of lactic acid in certain people, things like that. So uh, even with a very casual, normal amount of work, um, the muscles can just give out. Mm, interesting. Does it is it consistent? Does it always feel the same, or does it kind of flare up and and then kind of go up and down? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, for me, I've noticed that um, besides you know triggers, my main triggers that I that I'm attentive to, uh, there are just days that show up bad and don't know why. Uh, it feels for me, it kind of feels consistent in that I can clock it in my body when I'm feeling a flare up. Uh, but outside of a flare up, I mean, it, it affects anything and everything I do. Anything with voluntary musculoskeletal muscles, um, you, I feel it in any sort of activity every day. So there's like a consistent baseline of, you know, whatever you're doing, this disease is affecting you. And then when you flare up, that means maybe you've done too much in one day or something, and then it gets, uh, makes itself more known, it makes its presence more known. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I think also with myasthenia gravis, because it can um, escalate to a myasthenia crisis, which is essentially your a diaphragm or any sort of other involved muscles um, are so weak that you're unable to breathe. You're unable to do things that keep you alive. Um, and that's, that's considered a myasthenia crisis. That's emergency room. You got to get an IVIG right away um, or else you're going to suffocate in your own kind of existence. <laughs> um and so that I feel like when when I'm having a flare up, I can I can tell that um, it's beyond the consistent level, like you were saying. What does a flare up feel like? For me, a flare up feels like uh, complete and utter weakness. I, from breathing to blinking to chewing to swallowing to you know holding a pen to walking. Anything that you can think of that involves voluntary muscle engagement is, um, it feels like there's a million pounds weighted down or that gravity has been dialed up really high. Um, and it also just kind of feels like what I would imagine being like 95 years old feels like. <laughs> wow. So how often do you have a flare up where it feels like you like gravity is turned up? For me, the flare ups are pretty consistent right now. I in the same realm as the endometriosis, I can tell when that starts to flare up and usually those 
flare-ups are pretty much hand in hand. Mm. Um, I usually have about one or two good weeks a month. And then the rest of the month is some sort of low grade flare up or high grade flare up. Um, and I would say that um, during the warmer months, um, unlike some other folks I know who have my and Brabus, I have a little bit better success um, keeping those flare ups manageable. When it's warmer, it's easier. Yeah, I feel like for me, um, when it's warmer, maybe it's even just a psychological thing in that I see sunshine, it's warmer, uh, my muscles aren't constricting constantly because I'm cold. Um, maybe that has something to do with it. It's There really aren't a lot of studies on myasthenia gravis and it's really not on a lot of doctors' minds or they don't even know what it is. Wow. So. It's kind of me putting puzzle pieces together, trying to figure out why something might be. Yeah, that's so interesting because, you know, with any chronic disease, you just have to become your own expert in your own body because, you know, there, there's all the, the sort of like research about what it does and like, you know, medical descriptions about how things feel. But it very often, you know, to live in a body with something very often does not match that exactly. And you just have to kind of learn yourself and learn the best ways to manage it for you. Exactly. Yeah. I, ever since I was, I think the gas, the medical gaslighting started for me at a very young age. And I very quickly learned that doctors are not necessarily on your side. Mm. Um, there, I do have a couple, uh, my primary care doctor, she's wonderful. I'm lucky that I really scored great with her but my 14 other specialists none of them seem to be on my team um and at a young age i was already having some physical difficulties um i am in the process of being officially diagnosed with hypermobile ehlers-danlos syndrome mm. um i had another doctor pretty much confirm based on the biting test or the baton test however you want to pronounce it because there isn't really clear testing for hypermobile version of that. And I went into the doctor when I was younger and was having joint problems. And I got a couple x-rays done. My mom was in the doctor's office with me. And the doctor's conclusion was, you're making it up for attention. And he told my mom that I need to be disciplined more as a result. And unfortunately, that, you know, at 10 years old, like when you're in your extremely formative years, that's going to stick with you. So unfortunately, you know, it hasn't proven me otherwise, but like some other folks who might be a little bit older and might have a little bit more trust in the medical system, it's quite a shock mm -hmm. um, to have all of those decades behind you where you're like, I thought, I thought you were on my team, but this whole time, you really didn't give a shit. Yeah, that, it's so, so frustrating how common this is. So upsetting. And of course, things like this have happened to me as well. Uh, so when when did your diagnostic process start? You mentioned going to this doctor at 10 years old. Is that the beginning of knowing that something was, was not quite right in your body? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really great way of putting it, that there was not something quite right with my body from the start. Uh, as far as the myasthenia gravis goes, 
I started showing clear symptoms about seven years ago, seven or eight years ago, which is uh, ptosis, dro one drooping eyelid hmm. and some sagging, things like that, difficulty swallowing, things like that. Sagging in your eyelids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just kind of walk around looking like I'm kind of winking at people, <laughs> uh, but it's not cute. It's not the cute kind of winking. <laughs> <laughs> people are like shielding their children they're like look away um <laughs> from the get-go yeah there were there were issues also with how my uh immune system would respond to things hmm. so i would um instead of you know just getting a cold like my other siblings and then we you know have a cold for a little bit you're a kid that's normal i would be sick for weeks and weeks if I had a sinus infection, it would turn to bronchitis or it'd start to turn into pneumonia. Like it would just progress instead of finding, uh, you know, some sort of quick resolution like a lot of kids have. Um, I always had difficulties recovering from surgery. Um, I had um, a breast reduction actually, and my body couldn't heal itself closed. So for months on end, my body was just open. There was no healing at all. Um, and there were things like that along the way that indicated that whatever we thought was normal or chill, not a big deal initially, is turning into a life-threatening situation. Um, and yeah, 10 years old, I think I made a decision that I wasn't going to go to the doctor unless I absolutely had to. And then starting around the age 16, 17, uh, I had to start going um, back as a result of the endometriosis. Was that because of the way the doctor treated you when you were 10, that you didn't want to go back? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to be told again to my face or my mother, who was there with me as my advocate, I didn't want either one of us to be told yet again that I was just doing it for attention. And now I was very very lucky in that my mother uh, didn't fully believe the doctor. Mm. I know that some, some folks have difficulties with their families not believing them. Um, I was very lucky in that my mom was like, you know what? Doctors are detectives. And this wasn't a good detective. He couldn't figure out from the clues. From that experience at 10 years old, I was like, unless it's an emergency, I don't, I don't want to be gaslit to my face again. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that that that's what your mom said because that's what i was thinking about is you know it, this type of situation where the doctor is wrong and says something that is deeply damaging to a 10 year old child and could severely impact your health in your life i mean that this type of thing is like so dangerous and so common and so upsetting and when you're 10 you don't know that you have to be your own self-advocate that you have to trust yourself trust your body and get a second opinion because you're trained to think that doctors are gods and that they know everything. And any good doctor will tell you that they don't know everything. <laughs> like, I have so many great doctors now, and they all of them say, hey, well, I can help you with this thing that is my specialty. This thing that is not, you know, we'll send you to someone else because I don't know everything. I, I only know about this thing that you're here to see me about. Um, and, you know, the doctors that make these grand sweeping statements, like, you're doing this for attention... Uh, like, it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous. It was obviously a traumatic experience, but I'm so glad to hear that it wasn't like 
the end all be all in the opinion of your caregiver of your mom because that would be so much more of a disaster than it already was yeah for sure i was very lucky in that also um from such a young age my mom had the conversation with me like i said before that doctors are detectives they don't have the complete answer they don't have the complete picture even because you are the expert of your own body a lot of us who have chronic illnesses or disabilities we say that all the time or we're we're our own experts when it comes to our bodies and i mean at least it prepared me for you know um similar conversations when i was older i walk into offices all the time i have because i know this is an audio format i'll describe myself a little bit <laughs> that i i have bright green hair i've got lots of tattoos i'm very tall i'm almost six feet tall um i present more androgynous i'm scary to a lot of people <laughs> Uh, especially some of the doctors who deal with, you know, mainly like older patients or, um, you know, just see like older family members coming in and out. They're not expecting to see me and my Doc Martin platforms. And uh, I've had doctors tell me to my face that they think I'm drug seeking or, um, you know, flinch at the sight of me. Even if you're joking and you're pretending to flinch, that's not what I want to see as a patient. <laughs> Um, that's not reassuring. You know, I've, I've had doctors, um, look at my chart and they say, Oh, what makes you think you have a tremor? And then I hold up my tremoring hand and they're like, I think you're just a little anxious right now. And you're like, okay, just this one moment. Okay. Nice. So, I mean, it was like, I, I was already prepared to go into appointments kind of in the defensive stance. Like I was prepared for the gaslighting, let's just say. Yeah, it's so frustrating. I, uh, it's just so upsetting. And I, I'm so frustrated with how often I hear this from people. You know, it's just, yeah. I mean, it's pretty much every single person who comes on the podcast experiences this. Totally, totally. And I, I even made the comparison. My partner is a fully able-bodied gentleman and has never really had to experience what it's like to live in a body that's not functioning correctly. He's never had to experience limitations. Hmm. So my partner has never had to question medical professionals. He's never had a reason to. And it's kind of similar to, I mean, I won't get political or anything like that, but a lot of people who have the conversation about dealing with cops, um, you know, a white person is going to be like, ah, they're always on my side. And then for folks of color, they might be like, oh, what world have you been living in? I, you know, I have different uh relationship with these people um and so i describe it as also to my my partner when we went to college when we were going to university you didn't always have a professor that you agreed with 100 they may have a phd they have a master's degree you know whatever their highest level of education is in that field they've been in school a lot longer than you for sure but a lot of the takes that they have are still really, uh, I don't want to say incorrect, but they are misleading, mm. things like that. And so I'm like, just because your professor is well-educated does not mean they're infallible. The same goes for any profession. If we hold one profession on a pedestal, does that mean that everybody else who is educated in other fields is, you know, lesser than? No, we're all we're all human. We're all fallible. 
Uh, so just just like any other profession, a doctor may not have the complete answer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what you're talking about here uh, about empathy, you know, like when someone tells you what their experience is, you have two options. You can either listen to them and try to understand their perspective, or you can just compare it to your own experience. And if it doesn't match up, throw it away. And that's what a lot mm-hmm. of people do. And, and in, in my opinion, it's so important to stop doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, your example with the cops is a good example. Like if, you know, I'm, I'm white. When I've been pulled over, I've had like surprisingly good experiences. I've even like talked myself out of a ticket before. Um, But, you know, when the entire community of like people of color is saying, that's not what's happening to me, you have two options. You can say, oh, well, that's not my experience. So they're wrong. Or you can listen and learn and say, okay, well, there's something going on here that I'm not experiencing that is a problem for this community. So there's like two ways to think about life, you know, and I feel like uh, the more that we open ourselves to, taking in other people's experiences and integrating them into our view of the world and developing our sense of empathy. I think the, the better, the better we are able to live in a society as a community. Absolutely. I, yes, all of those things. It's really interesting. Um, I grew up, um, in a very, um, controlled household. I was isolated. I was homeschooled for the sole purpose of, um, being sheltered from the outside world. So when I started to grow up, I started going to college and my world started expanding a little bit. I had the option of either just following exactly what I was taught and not even attempting to branch out, or I had the option of following these other paths that I hadn't followed before. And the biggest, I think, epiphany that I had that I wish some doctors would have is um what if what if they're not lying like what if let's just play the devil's advocate quote unquote what if this person who is saying that they're not drug seeking Mm. is actually telling the truth what if and then that that opens up a whole nother world for you to explore and even if they're lying even if i was drug seeking i'm seeking help of some kind even if i was drug seeking i need help in some shape or form and i would hope that that's why you went into the profession but i feel like so many of the doctors so many of the specialists that i see on a regular basis didn't go in to this field uh led by empathy Hmm. a lot of it unfortunately (laughs) was led by ego or just because they're really good at it yeah. Which is awesome. I'm happy for you if you're good at it, <laughs> but that leaves out like the whole customer service side of it. Yeah. Um that has a lot more at stake than, you know, just checking out an Macy's. Yeah, and you know, making that sort of judgment call that someone is uh drug seeking within minutes of meeting someone, like that is more profiling than diagnostics. You know, like yeah. If you walk in the room, I'm going to think, oh, this looks like a cool person that looks like a fun person that I want to get to know, you know? And if mm-hmm. if, a do- if you walk into a room and the doctor's immediate thought is, this person looks like a drug seeker, like that is a prejudice against people with, you know, 
alternative hair colors and tattoos that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with the individual who walked in the room and everything to do with the doctor and their preconceptions. And yeah, I mean, it's happened to me too, you know, like when I first, I went to the emergency room the first time my mystery illness uh, was so severe that I was scared and uh, the doctor thought that I was drug seeking and I got so lucky that my friend Ben was working in the admissions of the ER that I went to. I just <laughs> random, you know, I, I went in there. I was like, oh, Ben, hey, what's up? <laughs> you know, I'm having a medical crisis. How are you doing? Oh my um, God. And he vouched for me with the doctor because like I had, you know, at the time, really long hair. I was really into the Dave Matthews band. I was probably yeah. wearing hemp necklaces or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just like, this guy does drugs, you know? They just took one look at me and the way that I present myself based off of the music that I like meant that they thought that I was a drug seeker. That's... Oh my God. Yeah. I'm first of all, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I'm glad that you had a friend working the stars align. Something happened that, that, you know, that your friend was working, but that, yeah, exactly. Like you said, just because of the music that you listen to the friends that you hang out with that influence your style or the t-shirt you're wearing, whatever it is like super, minor things that don't indicate who you are at the core Mm -hmm. is really wild to me. Yeah. And I was one, one friend's, you know, vouching for me away from not from being kicked out of the ER. My Ben told me later, he's like, they were going to send you home. Uh, But instead they like let me in and did an MRI and did all these tests and stuff and they didn't find anything wrong. And they just told me it was all in my head and sent me home anyway. So it still wasn't, you know, super valuable, but it at least, was the start of a journey where we had a test that we could look at. Um, and then, then I started my first, you know, diagnostic roller coaster that yielded nothing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it was way better than just being kicked out of the office in the midst of a crisis where I thought I was having a stroke, you know? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, so in, it's just so upsetting that this is the way that things are. But let's get back to your story. Okay, so do you mind if I ask how, how old you are now? Yeah, I'm 30 years old. 30 years old. Okay, so you were 10 when you first went to the doctor, didn't help at all. And then did you say you were uh, 16, 17 when you went back for endometriosis pain? Yes. So tell me about that. Yeah, I I got uh, my period later in life. So I was seeing a doctor with concerns about, you know, I was having pain, but nothing was happening. Uh, and then when I did get started getting uh, my period, I started menstruating. Uh, the pain was so debilitating that I would pass out wow. on the toilet. I would be on the toilet for hours and then would eventually pass out. Um, or I would just be um, unable to speak. I would lose the ability to speak because I was gasping for air i couldn't breathe because the pain was so bad wow um i would my family would sometimes just watch me writhe on the floor because i didn't know what else to do and they didn't know what else to do either they would just be like do you need something and i wouldn't be i'd be like (gasps) and they'd be like okay (laughs) we'll check back in five minutes oh no Uh, (laughs) and i mean like i would spend you know the i would sometimes be bleeding for two weeks straight Wow! and I'm talking not to get graphic, but I'll go through a super plus tampon 
and an overnight pad in a half an hour. I was hemorrhaging at that point um, where I didn't find out till later um, due to um, a, a blood disorder that I'm a carrier of that affects also that whole situation um, that I was losing so much blood that I should have been maybe going to the hospital every month. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I was seeing a doctor rewind back to being 16, 17 and being freaked out um, with the amount of pain, the amount of bleeding, how long it was lasting. I was going to see um, a gynecologist who at one point laughed in my face um, because I brought something up related to the pain I was feeling. Um, it was one of those cliches where, oh, darling, that's just being a woman. Mm. And, you know, you're like, well, then screw being a woman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was you know, was not left with any options. Um, later down the road, once um, I had another doctor who was uh, putting some of the pieces together and actually being a little bit curious about it, um, eventually said, oh, I think you have endometriosis. There's nothing we can do, though. Sorry, that's just being a woman. Mm. You're like, okay, again, I'm hearing that, but... Um, is everybody walking around bleeding their guts out? How are they surviving? <laughs> Men who are dealing with similar things or for some people with endometriosis, um, they don't have any issues really. Mm. Um, I had a friend who was um, having an exploratory surgery because she was having difficulties with infertility. And in the process of that diagnostic, uh, that exploratory surgery, they found out that she had stage three endometriosis just plastered to the inside of her abdominal cavity. Um, and she had no symptoms to, to cause any sort of worry beyond, you know, the infertility that she was dealing with. Um, so I, whenever I would talk to somebody and I bring up the endometriosis topic, it was always a mixed bag of the response I would get. Some people would not even know what it was. Some people would be familiar with what it was, but their experiences were very different. Um, but eventually, um, I was so desperate for help that I was um, looking for a new gynecologist, looking for somebody who would actually do uh, an excision surgery on me. Um, and I kept getting refused. Uh, I wasn't very familiar with navigating um the medical system or dealing with medical professionals in a way for my benefit. Um, like people have the, the tip, ask it to be written down in your chart. So you have proof as to why you're being denied care. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wasn't savvy to that. Um, so I was just hopping from doctor to doctor, find, trying to find somebody to perform surgery, which when doctors see that your doctor hopping, that will oftentimes put a uh, stigma on you and they don't want to um, address your concerns because they think that you are a hypochondriac and you're just looking for a doctor to affirm whatever it is that's in your head. Mm. Um, eventually, out of sheer luck, my partner was at a holiday party for his work and he ran into an old coworker. And that old co-worker asked um, where I was, why I wasn't accompanying him. 
he said, oh, she's having issues with her endometriosis right now. So she's just sick in bed right now, unfortunately. She said, oh my God, I have endometriosis. I just had surgery for it. And this is the amazing doctor I had. Let me give you her info and have your partner call her, see if she's covered by your insurance, see if you can see her. And I, for the first time ever, I had a doctor who asked me what I would like help with. Mm. And I said, my endometriosis, it's, it's not something that you can uh, officially diagnose uh, as far as the medical system recognizes um, unless you have surgery. So I was telling her about how I was um, having difficulties getting any sort of help um, and I couldn't get an official diagnosis because of surgery. And she's like, well, let's uh, let's schedule surgery for you then. And I was like, it's just, just like that. <laughs> she's like, yes, just like that. And then I started crying. And so, oh, my God. And um, yeah, we did the surgery and she, you know, as soon as I woke up, she handed me a folder with a DVD of the entire surgery and photographs of her removing the endometriosis and a full report so that when, whenever I would have to deal with another doctor, I could just present this folder to them. Wow. Um, she found stage two and stage three all over and yeah, crazy. <laughs> How old were you when that happened? I was, let's see, this was, um, I was 20, going on 27, so I was 26. Okay. So, you'd already been diagnosed with myasthenia gravis at that point? I actually hadn't. Really? Um, that was, yeah, that was actually super recent for me. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. It wasn't until, I think, like last year. And you said it's, Christmas time. Yeah. it's been like seven years since that has been really affecting you and like really obvious. So yeah. you went through like six years of, of, of having a very obvious disease that was not diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know what that's like that has yeah. happened to me too, but that's still very upsetting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know what was going on um, until I actually, <laughs> I saw a TikTok and someone was talking about myasthenia gravis. No I was way. like, <laughs> and then everything started clicking because I'd been seeing at that point, I'd been seeing maybe 10 specialists and I kept bringing up these very vague sort of uh, symptoms that I was just, um, these vague symptoms were the most prominent, the most pronounced. And then the ones that were very like signature to my senior gravis, I just kind of blown those off because no doctor ever asked me further questions. Mm. Um, I had always just thought, oh, my mitosis, the sagging eye, that's just because I'm tired, right? Like you're just trying to focus on whatever is affecting you the most severe, sure. the most severely. Um, so I bring up the extreme fatigue, the muscle weakness, um, you know, difficulties chewing and swallowing sometimes. And they just would always chalk it up to, oh, you need more sleep. You're not handling your stress correctly. You know, the, those cliches. Yeah. <laughs> and um, 
you know, resting, doing yoga, drinking more water, like all of the things that people recommend just kind of flippantly I had done and they weren't helping at all. And it wasn't until I saw the TikTok where someone was talking about their experience with Mycena Gravis. Don't know why that showed up on my For You page. No idea. Uh, just randomly saw somebody mention ptosis um, and then their difficulties with swallowing and when um, they were having a flare up, things like that. And I was like, oh, I guess I should be drink like, um, I realized that I should be bringing up the ptosis. Mm. Um, when I just thought it was because, oh, I have astigmatism and I'm tired. As soon as I mentioned the ptosis, um, I think he started making some connections. And I mentioned the ptosis to him knowing that I should investigate my gravis further. I should bring it up with him because he's never brought it up to me. Uh, and at that point, I'd been seeing him for a few years and we had done almost every test you could think of. Um, without definitive results. Um, so my neurologist got kind of quiet and then he started asking me um, like almost in like a whisper tone. He was like, are you experiencing this? Mm. Have you ever noticed help when you do this? Mm. Um, and then we did some very basic in office um, initial diagnostic testing where he had me like look up until my eyes got fatigued. And then he had me kind of look back and forth. I had double vision at that point. My eyelid was sagging. Um, I couldn't really control my eye movement. One of the very basic diagnostic tests is the ice pack test where you just put an ice pack on your eye, see if it helps with the ptosis. And um, it did. And so he started getting the ball rolling. Um to get the blood work done that would uh, possibly confirm myasthenia gravis because around uh, 10 to 20 percent of those with MG uh, do not show up on blood work. Uh, so those those folks are called seronegative. Uh, and that's what my doctor believes I am because my antibodies, any potential myasthenia gravis related antibodies didn't show up on blood work. There's also not enough Mycena gravis studies out there to confirm whether or not it's 10 to 20% of folks who show up seronegative. A lot of people think that it's actually a much higher number mm -hmm. and that there's a lot about Mycena gravis we just don't understand yet. Um, and that would uh, lend also to the antibodies that show up in our blood work, that there's a lot more going on beneath the surface than we realize. Yeah. Wow. And that was just like a year ago. Um, and yeah. then, so he does this, uh, this workup in clinic and does he diagnose you that day or is there, you know, a further process? Does he try medication first before diagnosing you? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, cause that's very specific to my senior gravis. There is only one medication that has shown to, uh, address any of the symptoms. Um, it's called pyridostamine, that's the generic name, or mestinon, which is the, I guess, fancy name. And that medication helps with the communication between um, the neurons and the muscle cells. And if you respond to that medication, that is another form of um, 
diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Some doctors just diagnose based on how you respond to pyridostamine, if you do or if you don't. I did right off the bat. Nice. I would immediately <laughs> had a response. I was like, I can see. Wow. And, um, but um, there's another step that my insurance is requiring. So my doctor has told me in office to my face um, that he cannot give me an official diagnosis according to my insurance for treatment until I have one more test done. And I have been chasing that test for oh. about seven months now. Oh, man. So this test is called a single fiber uh, nerve conduction test. Mm -hmm. So the single fiber nerve conduction test is very specific and only a few offices and a few doctors will perform this test because it requires a lot of equipment. I've been told I haven't still gotten the test done yet, so I can't tell from experience, but I've been told that it requires a hospital setting. Um, so I have been battling insurance like a lot of other people have uh, to get this test covered because the only person that I've been able to find who does this test or performs this test uh, works at, as a researcher at UCLA here. Um, but my insurance doesn't cover any sort of research-oriented testing. So any sort of testing that's done in a research setting by a researcher primarily uh, is not covered. So I've had to battle insurance to get that covered. And as a result of this battle, they're trying to approve other doctors, other neurologists, other neurosurgeons, but none of them perform this test. So every two weeks I get a letter in the mail with a new number of a new neurologist that I'm supposed to call and see if they will perform the test on me. Every time it's a no. And then I have to call my office again and say, hey, I need you to try a different name. I need you to try a different number or whatever it is. And then they put in a new request and then I have to wait for my insurance to process that. I have to wait for a letter in the mail. I have to wait to call that number and get the same answer. No, we don't do that test here. It's so backwards. Uh, it's so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> Why is and it this way? <laughs> it is. <laughs> I, I have told my partner, it's so easy to become so hopeless and not because we're not trying, but because we are trying. And the only system that we have at our disposal is not vouching for us. Yeah. I've I've even called I've called my, you know, direct directly to my um insurance office and tried to speak to people regularly. Um and every time they're like, you know, you have to take it up with your neurologist's office. And then when I call my neurologist's office, they're like, yo, you got to take it up with your insurance. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I call my insurance and they're like, call UCLA and see if they can give you a special code. And I'm the one that's left in charge of doing all of this coding and all of this, you know, translating for the other office. And I'm not the trained professional. So, you know, as a result, I'm probably more qualified than a lot of folks that I interact <laughs> with. And, and I don't mean that in like a snobby way. I'm like, no, I'm like, 
had the um, on-the-job experience now. <laughs> yeah, that's so frustrating. Well, I, I, you know, it sounds like as far as everything's concerned for your actual life and functionality, just be on the medication is the confirmation needed for the diagnosis. So it's like, you know, you have this disease, your doctors basically told you you have this disease, but it's just getting insurance on board is like this whole horrific ordeal that they're putting you through, which is so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious about what you thought was happening in your body, especially over the last seven years when your myasthenia gravis was getting more severe. So you must be going through these episodes where you, you know, you can't do anything. Your body just sort of gives out on you. You're sort of catatonic. You can't get signals from your brain to your muscles. Um, how has that affected how you went about your life and how do you go to work? And are you missing a lot of work? You know, tell me about that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So before I had the um, sort of green light to my senior gravis, I was terrified and I'm still honestly terrified even with that type of diagnosis um, because I would look up, I would research, oh my God, yeah. like <sighs> I would try to look up all of these symptoms and try as objectively as I could to see if there were any other possible answers and ways that I could address it on my own because medical professionals were not helping. And of course, with the, the set of symptoms that I'm experiencing, ALS would come up a lot, Sure, which is a very scary diagnosis in itself. And I personally have a friend who I lost to ALS and I saw what a scary um, deterioration that is mm -hmm. in particular. And um, I didn't have doctors who could refute that either. Mm. Um, so I was living with days and days in bed. Um, I still do. I sometimes am in a bed in bed for a week straight um, where I'm just so weak that I'm unable to shower. I'm unable to make myself food. Um, I'm just getting up to use the bathroom. Um, I sometimes go periods where I can't even eat on my own. Um, I'm just sipping on a protein shake throughout the day, just one shake. Um, and that, that's, that gets really scary and also required me to take a step back from working. Um, I had another doctor who told me that um, I was a liability on set working as a cinematographer and that for the safety of myself and those around me, I should not be on set because I was also having fainting spells. Mm. So I also mm. have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Wow. Um, so I would be conducting these long interviews and be, I would have to stand the whole time and I would eventually pass out. Um, I would, uh, related to the myasthenia gravis, I would sometimes be um, operating a heavy camera handheld and uh, very quickly my muscles would become so fatigued that they'd be trembling and I wouldn't be able to hold on to the camera. So I'd drop thousands and thousands of dollars worth of equipment, wow. um, which is a big no-no as you probably guess. Um, <laughs> or if I managed to hold on to the camera, 
it would be shaky ass footage because I'd be like trying to operate, but I'm shaking so much, mm. just holding on for dear life to this piece of equipment that the footage would be unusable. Um, so my life has completely changed as a result of my Sina Gravis. Unfortunately, I don't know when I'm going to be able to go back to work full time. I'm in the process of trying to get on disability, um, which I know is a very long battle for a lot of people. And I'm expecting that. Um, but in the meantime, I am also on government health insurance and I have very strict limits to the amount of work that I can do before I'm cut off from that. Yeah. Um, which is also extremely important that I stay on that insurance because I get MRIs done, I get CT scans, I get these types of really expensive blood tests done um, that are sometimes upwards of $4,000. Um, you know, I have all of these things that I so desperately need for um, hopeful improvement in quality of life, but as a result, I can't work, which does a number on your mental health when you have this career that you've been working on for 10 years and it's something that you love and you love being active i love manual labor i don't know why i love being physical sweating i love you know being rough and tumble and i learned very quickly that my body's just not made for that long term um I even just yesterday, I had a really good friend hit me up about um, a commercial job that he wanted me to shoot for him. Uh, and I told him the situation, you know, I was, I was like, I can, I can be the cinematographer without being physically involved, but that would um, mean that you would have to hire more people onto the job to do the manual labor for me. And I know that you might not have that within the budget. And he said, yeah, no, we don't. I'm so sorry. So even the possibility of working in my field um, has faded almost completely, um, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I feel that. You know, I've gone through a lot of that myself. I've, there, there's so many things in my life that I embarked upon with great enthusiasm that ended because of my health. And it's turned into a process of... Uh, self-accommodation of trying to figure out like what can i do you know inside mm -hmm. of all these limitations um mm -hmm. and it's so difficult and so unfair to have the the life goals ripped away from you but in their place new things emerge has anything mm -hmm. sort of you know have you fallen into anything else that you wouldn't have expected because of these limitations yeah i i've actually taken up very um very mild impact hobbies i actually never had hobbies when i was working in the film industry so it really isn't time for hobbies when you're on set for 16 hours um sometimes weeks at a time you're on the road and since i've been forced to sit still for so long i've started adding the any sort of low impact hobbies that I can cycle through depending on what my abilities are for the day. So I love doing makeup and 
I started doing drag makeup in particular. Um, and some days I lose the ability to hold things um, because my muscles are just so weak. So I'm like, okay, well, I can't do that hobby today. What's a different hobby that I could do? Um, I have another hobby where I, uh, I'm Palestinian and there's a very ancient uh, form of embroidery. It's a cross stitch uh, called Tatriz. And I have had the time to actually learn about this type of cross stitching and start practicing that type of cross stitching. And it's something that my grandmother thought would die with her. Um, and so it's gotten me back in touch with um, a very important side of my family that I've been disconnected from for a long time. Um, it has also forced me to, um, I don't want to say forced, it's given me room. Being sick has given me room to investigate and heal some of the relationships in my life that have needed attention. Mm. In particular with my parents, I've had a lot more time to talk to them on the phone. And um, there, there are conversations and, um, you know, there are moments where I am very, very vulnerable with them about where I'm at. And that has helped our relationship and helped with the healing and the avoidance that I think a lot of families have when it comes to um, chronically ill children or disabled kids. We just kind of dance around how sick they are because it's so painful to see someone you love so much suffering. And you just kind of will or you kind of believe them into being better. Yeah. Um, and so, especially with having an immigrant father, uh, he, you know, coming out of a refugee camp, seeing death around him, struggling um, to get on his feet and living the American dream, coming to America, getting his master's degree. And then your child is like sick as hell. Mm. You're like, not that you're thinking it's a waste of time, but you're so discouraged on their behalf because you've given them everything, every opportunity that you never have. And then that is stripped away from them again. It's heartbreaking, but it is something that I never thought we'd be able to really discuss between me and my dad. And now we're able to have those conversations a little bit more vulnerably than we ever had. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's so powerful. And I, I've had sort of the reverse where I sort of hid how I was doing. I didn't hide it entirely, but I wasn't completely forthright with how sick I was. I, I didn't want to believe it, you know, and I didn't want to make it real by worrying the people who were going to worry the most about me. So, it's really hard to be honest about chronic illness. It's really hard to be open about challenges that we face in our bodies, especially with the people that we love the most. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There, unfortunately, there's, there have been some issues of chronic illness in my family for a long time. Um, and it was just avoided so much that it became deadly for some. And 
I think as an adult, I've been able to unpack that a little bit more and realize that the more that we try to hide and protect those we love from the pain that we are feeling, that it's going to be more painful later down the line when either they realize you were suffering that much and they wanted to be able to offer their support. I mean, for some, we kind of do it out of self-preservation because we know it's, you know, going to cost more than it is going to benefit if we share certain details. But um, I think with my family also, I, one of my sisters has been uh, gravely ill several times and I didn't want to put my family through any more worry or any more stress because of how I was doing. And I would just be quiet about how I was feeling um, because, uh, you know, you, a lot of us who are chronically ill, we compare each other. Um, I, you know, I'd look to my sister and be like, oh, I'm, but I'm not gravely ill. So I shouldn't really be complaining, quote unquote, complaining. Uh, I shouldn't really have to worry my parents further when somebody else is living in the hospital. Like I, I can get by, I can figure it out, but I think um, it doesn't have to be black or white, whether we share something or we don't share something. We can be tactful or we can be particular about what we share and things like that. And at the end of the day, we are the experts of our own bodies and um, we're the experts of our brains as well. So if we're also in tune to what our mental health is like, I would hope that we could also um, share that burden with those we trust. Wow. And a lot, of, a lot of us, I think also we've lost so many people that we love along the way, not necessarily lost um, in that they've passed away, but they've kind of passed away in our life where they don't really exist anymore. Um, Unfortunately, I've lost so many friends along the way, and I didn't realize it was because I was sick. Uh, I was not being a good friend, and they would, you know, break up with me as a friend, very aggressively tell me things about myself that I didn't realize, but they were characteristics that I didn't identify with, but they were things that these people were still experiencing as a result of me being sick mm -hmm. and not registering that I was so sick and it was affecting them. And I've had to reconcile a lot of lost friendships, whether they've parted ways um, embittered or if they've just kind of faded over time. I have, you know, a core group of people that I still have that I'm very open with um, or they're the people that I invite over, even if I'm not feeling well, because I know that if I'm not the life of the party, I can still trust them. But outside of grieving over the loss of things that we lose, abilities or sensations or opportunities, we also grieve the loss of all of these people that were once so near and dear to us who don't consider us as near and dear. And it's, it can be very isolating and very heavy. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I really relate to this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. The, the way that you don't <laughs> recognize that you are presenting to the world because you are sick. You expect everyone to compartmentalize healthy you and sick you. 
and, mm-hmm. and know that healthy you is the real you and that sick you isn't the real you. But that's not how it works, you know? Like they see <laughs> the totality of what you are presenting to the world, even if it's the things that you don't want to present that you have no control over presenting. And if you're not aware of that and if you're not uh, communicating around that, it can cause massive misunderstandings in relationships. And it's something that took me years to figure out that mm-hmm. people thought that I was ignoring them or abandoning them. When it was like, I think that you're ignoring and abandoning me because I am too sick to reach out and you're not reaching out. And like, I I dropped off the face of the earth and they thought it was like, oh, I'm sick of you. It's like, no, I need you and you're ignoring me, you know, but it's both true. It's so wild. Yeah, but it's it's amazing how like both things can be true at the same time. You can still be a good friend, but still be affecting your friend in a negative way. Mm. And it's not because you're <laughs> it's not because you're a shitty person. Um, I've had to call other friends during these types of episodes or experiences where someone is unloading all of the things that I've wronged them with. And I've had to call, you know, one of these trusted friends and ask them, are these things true? Because in my head, I know they're not true. But after hearing several people who are my ride or dies, tell me that I'm being terrible to them in this way. I, I guess I don't know myself at all. And thankfully I've had some good people who have been able to register. No, you're not those things. You can inflict pain on somebody, but not be, you know, a murderer. And unfortunately, because I would withdraw so much and not register that I was withdrawing or why I was withdrawing. Uh, Somebody who once expected me to be there at the drop of a hat, suddenly I'm not there at the drop of the hat. She dropped her hat. All right, where's Dana? And I'm busy dealing with my own hats. Um, And we've never, we never had the conversation about, you know, this is what's going on. And they weren't able to have the opportunity to have empathy Um, I write people off very quickly just as a way of self-preservation because I'm, I, I'm like, I'm too fragile at this point to deal with another heartbreak like that. So I'm just going to write you off right away and keep you at an arm's length. Um, whereas some people are like actually in my life really putting in an effort to support me, which is so rare, I think for a lot of us who are sick. Yeah. Wow. So much important stuff to think about in there. How has your life changed since starting this new myasthenia gravis medication? So the pure dostamine has really, I wouldn't say it's given me my life back, but it's certainly given me some elements of my life back that I didn't have before. I was choking on my food uh, before I was on the medication I would sometimes be slurring my speech so significantly that I would just quit talking for the day because there's no use. Um, I have to take it every four hours right now. And I have like a pretty average dose as well. So I know that there is some room for upping the dose if I need. Um, But, you know, just like anybody who has to rely on a medication for the rest of their life, there there's this, um, kind of sadness that there is a dependence on something outside of yourself. Um, and I've been self 
patient for so long and I've muscled through so many symptoms, but when it becomes that life-threatening, I'm like, yeah, I have to bite the bullet. I have to be dependent on a medication. Um, my gravis is also not curable. There are some uh, successful cases where people have had a thymectomy where they get their thymus removed, um, which I didn't even know what a thymus was. Yeah, before. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Apparently, according to what I've learned, um, it it's a, an organ that is located right behind your collarbone and right above your breastbone, kind of right about um, where a neck necklace would reside. Um, and it's an organ that after puberty becomes a vestigial organ. So it kind of becomes something like an appendix where you don't really need it, but you know, it couldn't hurt, couldn't hurt to just leave it there. Um, but for a lot of folks with Mycenae gravis, there is either some uh, residual tissue that hasn't um, transformed into vestigial tissue of some kind. Very fancy words. I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, the tissue could potentially still be um, causing damage because it's it hasn't completely shut off. Ah, interesting. Um, so for me, I got a CT scan and they saw that there was a little bit of residual uh, tissue. So it could be that that's causing issues and um, contributing to the myasthenia gravis. It could have nothing to do with it. Um, and going back to what I was saying before about the official diagnosis, quote unquote, that I'm still waiting for that my insurance approves of. I can't get a thymectomy until I have that on my records, oh. having that <laughs> test. So, <laughs> so that's the that's the only surgery that can be performed. So there are essentially, just to add on a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, there are three options, essentially treatment options for uh, my senior gravis. One is the pyridostamine, the medication that I was talking about, where it just manages the symptoms and tries to keep you out of going into my senior crisis. It just kind of keeps you at like a managing level. Um, then there's also um, IVIG therapy um, where you go in to either a clinic or somebody comes to your house and they give you this um, intravenous immunoglobulin sort of therapy um, to try to control your immune system a little bit and try to dial back the mycena gravis symptoms. And you would have to get that done every month, every couple of months. Um, and then there's the uh, thymus removal, the thymectomy, um, which all of those are kind of a toss up. Um, they're all kind of around 50, 50 success rate or remission rate. Um, I've seen different reports of different percentages. So I'm, not really sure what I can officially report, but that's that's kind of where that's at. So as far as taking the pyridostamine, it's given me hope that because I'm so responsive to the pyridostamine that we're going to be able to, in Arabic, we would say inshallah, which is God willing. It's kind of a way of like knock on wood. Um, inshallah, we'd be able to pursue other avenues of treatment. And if those don't work, at least the pure dosamine is helping me out. Yeah. So there is some relief. Yeah. Is, uh, is myasthenia gravis, uh, progressive? 
It is different in different people. So there are some people who only have what they call ocular myasthenia gravis, where they only have the ptosis or they only have the double vision, um, or there's generalized myasthenia gravis. So the generalized is what I would have, um, which affects more than just your um, ocular muscles or any sort of vision issues. And that tends to be more um, of a progressive situation. The ocular myasthenia gravis tends to just stay isolated to the eyes. Um, and generalized myasthenia gravis tends to progress to a certain point and then might, you know, recede a little bit and then might progress further. It's really different in everybody. Yeah. And it sounds like keeping you out of myasthenia crisis is the most critical thing. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's kind of the main focus of uh, people who are treating myasthenia gravis is just making sure that you're not in emergency mode, which is also frustrating because you're like, I want to improve. And if we're all we're focusing on is making sure I'm not, you know, hooked up to a ventilator. I, I, I really hope that we could progress to the point where I'm feeling like I have a little bit more of my life back. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, Dana, you've done an incredible job today. This has been such an amazing conversation. I I really relate to your story, which is I, I'm always shocked how much I relate to people with different diseases. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have myasthenia gravis, but I so much of what you've talked about, I really relate to. And it's just really powerful to hear someone else talk about these things. I really appreciate it. Um, my last question for you. So you've been through some really horrific medical gaslighting. You have this disease that doctors were telling you was just you not understanding how to live, <laughs> which is so messed up. But to anyone else out there, you know, someone, another 10-year-old out there who's going through this, um, or maybe we're addressing their parent, you know, someone else going through something similar, you've learned so much along the way about getting through and getting through to the other side and keeping pushing, learning to advocate for yourself. What would you tell someone else at the beginning of their journey to help them to get through? Yeah, I would tell them, first of all, you're not crazy. I believe you. And if there's at least one person who believes you, take comfort in the fact that we probably um, have very similar experiences. I would, I would tell a 10-year-old or someone younger who's starting out that this is going to be a long journey no matter what, even if you get answers right away, it's going to be a long journey because being sick is not just a one night stand. It's not something that's going to be over with when you wake up in the next, you know, Thursday. <laughs> and I would also let them know that there is a vast community of us that you're so not alone that you would be so shocked to know how many of us there are around you already um and we're all kind of secretive of it to a certain extent but if you find even just online some other folks who are chronically ill or just starting their journey off we're we're there for the long haul for you um a lot of us are going to be able to offer encouragement and support or relate to your experience and validate you um, we're, we're all ready and willing to give you the love that you so 
desperately need in times of crisis like this. You're not crazy. We're all around you and you're so adored. You're so adored. And even if you don't feel like that in your immediate family or your immediate friend group or school or whatever it is, it's out there for you. And we're just waiting to give it to you. Amazing. I love it. Uh, Dana, please tell us where people can go to connect with you online. And if there's any work that you've done, any cinematography work that you're <laughs> particularly proud of that you want people to take a look at, let us know. Ooh, yeah. I haven't done a lot of stuff that's been released recently, but if you go to my website, which is, I will spell it out because my name has some weird lettering in it. <laughs> so my first name, so D-A-N-A, -A, and then my last name, S-H-I-H-A-D, as in David, A-H.com. I have a lot of stills on there. I have some videos. I have some references to some work I'm proud of. Um, what's still one of my proudest projects is a an extremely low budget, rough and tumble feature film that I shot. It premiered at South by a few years back, um, and it's done pretty well. It's it's the shoot that you can tell um, everybody on set was having a great time. It's a very sweet and endearing story about a gal who decides to go camping while her mother is in treatment for cancer. Um, she's unable to join her on her trip that they plan together, but she runs into her ex on the way to the campsite and just tosses him in the car and they go camping. <laughs> What's it called? And there is a, it's called pet names. There is also an adorable pug in it. Um, so if you're into dogs, that is a huge plus. <laughs> Um, and it's on Amazon Prime as well. Um, and then if you're looking for me online, I'm not online as much as I used to be, but I have a TikTok. Um, you can find me, Dana Shut Up. You can find me also with the handle Yella Dudette, which is yell with an A at the end, underscore dude, and then just throw TTE at the end. So <laughs> Dudette, like you know, you're cool. That is my old, uh, Zanga handle. So I don't even know what Zanga is. <gasps> oh my gosh. Before my space, there was Zanga. Wow. There was before <laughs> my space. <laughs> yeah. This is like, this is a throwback. This is 2005. Wow. So you, I mean, you can find me on TikTok like that. I I've been posting more about, you know, my journey and, just whatever's farting around my brain. So <laughs> goodbye. Awesome. Well, Dana, amazing job today. What a gift to share your story with us. I know that you found out about my scenic Gravis on TikTok and now you're paying it forward by sharing your story. I'm sure that someone out there is going to hear this and that light bulb will go off and they'll have something to talk to their doctor about and maybe get some answers. And when you're undiagnosed, that's all you want. I know it. You know, I've lived through it for a long time. So, um, so incredibly valuable. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and sharing your story with us today. Absolutely. I've loved every second of this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncie, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash Pain Podcast.